you have chosen to listen to a podcast from the Nowata Methodist Church. You could be listening to anything else right now. You've chosen to listen to this, which means either you are a member of this community who was not able to be in worship this last Sunday and you know you need to keep up, or you're a person who is searching and for some reason this church has gotten your attention. And so if that's you, I, I hope that you really enjoy this particular podcast today because it's uh, it's the byproduct of a lot of meditation and prayer that I've put into 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I have very much enjoyed researching. I, uh, I finally have some good resources. I, I don't know how much you know about me. I went to seminary at Boston University School of Theology, and they didn't exactly equip me to do good research and work. So I've had to find trustworthy sources that take the Bible seriously that I knew I could count on and learn from, and I finally found some of these. My wife told me yesterday, she said, I did not know what you were going to do with 1 Corinthians 8. It just didn't seem to map at all onto where our society is. So she said, did you come up with your points or did you just get them from the book? And I said, well, a little of both. And so that is the honest answer. I, I feel good about the exegetical work that I've done. And I feel really good about the resources that I've used. So just so you know, this isn't just me making stuff up. This is me consulting people who know the biblical languages and know the history of how these things have been interpreted. And so this is, if this isn't responsible theology, I, I honestly don't know what is. So this is something that I've been aiming at being able to do for some time, and I'm very blessed to be able to have time during the week to prepare. So I, I hope you benefit from it. I hope as you meditate on these things that the Lord draws closer to you as you're drawing closer to him. I hope that as you resist the evil one that he flees from you and that this is something that contributes in a significant way to you being known and loved by God and uh, experiencing his Holy Spirit, testifying to your spirit that you are his child. So may this be a blessing to you. We just got done with chapter 7. That required us to take two weeks uh, to cover. 1 Corinthians hasn't been the easiest book. There are some real feel-good books in the Bible. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is probably my favorite. He's just happy with them. As has been abundantly clear over the last eight weeks, he's not real happy with the Corinthians. If you don't know who I'm talking about, it's Paul. And it's been hard to feel like uh, we're hearing good news whenever we're hearing Paul. You know, Paul, he, he says some positive things. Hey, God has granted you wisdom. He's obviously granted you power in his Holy Spirit. But then he's pretty consistently saying, you're not getting it. You're, you're, you're not doing it right. You know, is there anything more frustrating than people thinking they're doing something right and uh, they're learning at every step that they're doing it wrong? Uh, the, the worst experience I've ever had with that, I was, a, I was a bartender for a time in undergrad, and there was a guy who really wanted to be bartender, and I was teaching him the recipes, and the dude was awful. He was terrible, but he got so defensive about it that I just stopped correcting him, but then what did that result in was a bunch of drinks being sent back and him getting fired eventually because he couldn't take correction. When you're not coachable, when you're not teachable, you can't do what needs to get done, and the unfortunate thing about, well, fortunate, unfortunate, the hard thing about being a Christian is it requires a lot of correction because it's not easy to do right. Anybody else feel me with this? It is the most worthy thing in life, and the worthiest things in life are hard. They require a lot of concentration. They require a lot of self-consciousness, self-awareness as we 
try and do things, and we go, ah, oh, it's, it's, not, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, you know? So that's what the church is for, is to do, walk this path together and live out the scriptures together. And sometimes it feels great, you know? Bountiful tables feels great. Man, are we doing something good? A lot of attaboys from God on that. There are other areas where there are not many attaboys, especially whenever we're looking at the ways in which the culture around us is seeping into the church. It's really hard to feel good about ourselves whenever it seems like, yeah, we haven't really held the line on that as well as we should. Anybody else feel that way about yourself sometimes? I have not guarded against the world very well. Last week, I did try and tell good news. The good news was that God is more powerful than the immediate circumstances of our lives. And so if our immediate circumstances are miserable, we can continue in them because God stands on the other side of them. Now, that doesn't feel like good news to people who don't like their immediate circumstances. But I'll tell you, it's good news. When Jesus began his ministry, he sent the disciples out to tell good news before he died for everybody's sins. Isn't that interesting? We usually think of the good news as, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We, we talk immediately about the cross, his substitutionary atoning death on the cross that covers over our sins and makes us worthy of the kingdom. That is good news. But what good news were they telling before that happened? And the kernel that we're given is, the kingdom has come near and the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe. The good news has always involved repentance because there's a coming judgment. And the good news about that is we have a God who's paid the price so that we will survive the judgment and land on the other side in peace. But what's required there is to continually come up against the truth of the gospel, which is we are born in sin. This world cannot save us. And we need to continually, you know, remember Jesus said, he who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So it is a daily repentance. It's a daily self-denial. And so we, as the covenant community of faith, we trust in God's word. Amen. We trust in his instructions. And that means that we go through the valley of the shadow of death knowing that our loving shepherd, whose voice we hear, is guiding us all the way, and knowing that even when it doesn't feel like good news, even when it doesn't sound like good news, it is good news because on the other side of it is salvation. Now, if we were a community that was not responsible with good news, here is what you would hear. You were born in sin. You've only ever been a sinner. There's no point repenting because you're done. Give up and die. Is that the message we preach here? No. We preach something that sounds similar on the front end. You were born in sin. However, before you could even understand your wickedness, Christ died for you. And he loved you even when you weren't lovable. And he extended you a treasure you could never earn. And so now we who have received that truth and been changed by that truth are continually being renewed in the in our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit to reflect God's love and presence and power in the world. But with great power comes great responsibility, right? And so the responsibility is we've got to, somebody like my Spider-Man reference here, but we have got to drink the bitter medicine and we've got the sweetness to help the medicine go down, right? We've had the sweetness of singing together or praying together 
now's the bitter medicine time. And the bitter medicine that 1 Corinthians has is the world is trying to control you. The matrix has you, and you need to decouple from the world. This community needs to decouple from the world. Now, that's not to say we need to be a big cult out in the wilderness, some, some, some neo-monastic order. It is to say, well, remember at the end of the first chapter of James, true religion is this, to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress and to keep yourself unstained by the world, right? Jesus said, if you love the world, you will not be in the kingdom. The world hated Jesus. The world is going to hate us. Now, you can go too far with that because God did love the world, does love the world. He sent his son for the world. But we have to understand the world is married to death and destruction, sin and sorrow and sadness. It's our job to save the world out of itself, not to join the world where it is. Are we clear on that? So 1 Corinthians helps us get clear about the particular ways that we rebuke the world. We refuse the world, and we insist on God's kingdom here on earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we mean that prayer when we say it? So the scriptures tell us what that looks like. And sometimes, you know, James compares the scriptures to a, mi a mirror, right? A person who doesn't practice the scriptures is like a person who looks in the mirror and they go away and they forget what they look like. The scriptures are the mirror as to what we're supposed to look like. And sometimes the scriptures reflect what we are and we go, hey, we're doing okay. And other times they reflect how far off we are and we go, okay, we need repentance. We need a course correction. So that's what we're going to do in chapter 8 today. We're going to look at the standards uh, uh, leveled here and then assess ourselves against those standards. And it's kind of hard because there is a very big difference in our culture today and their culture back then around food. So back then, I know, well, how, how about I read? No, no, no. I got to explain back then. Back then around food, especially around meat, the culture was very different. They lived in a polytheistic culture in the Roman Empire. They believed in many different gods. And any region you were in, you were expected to worship many gods, including the emperor, who was a man, but also claimed to be a god. In any given city, there was at least one temple where sacrifices were made to that god. And then what did they do with the meat? They had a cookout. And so they would uh, have different events, banquets, weddings, funerals, civic events, at the local temple, they would invite everybody or, you know, just some crews, and they would eat this meat that had been sacrificed to a god, dedicated to a god, thank that god for that meat. And so Christians living in that environment, they want, they're not going off to the woods and living uh, an aesthetic life. They are with their, their community, and they are partaking in these meals, some of them. Well, they all seem to be going to these civic meals, but some of them are partaking of the meat that was dedicated to these gods. And then others are saying, no, no, that's idolatry. It, we cannot be idolaters. So we, we already had the kids recite to us, what is idolatry? In the ancient context, what was understood was there were lots of different deities in the heavenly realms. And we would make, humans would make these little figurines, like action figures or whatever, and they believed that the, the spirit of that God would be in that figure. And so they'd bow down to that God. They would pray to that God. They would worship that God. And then the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh of the Hebrews, he said, don't do that ever with me. Don't make a figure of me and do not ever bow, to, bow down to another figure, 
Ever, 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 ever. That is idolatry. Now, the new covenant shifts a little bit. I mean, we still don't do that. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. But an idol is not just a figurine for us. An idol is anything that demands our loyalty, our trust, that rightfully belongs to God. Anything that is not God that demands things of us that belong to God. So that is where the meat of today's question is. What, in our society today, mirrors their practice around eating meat dedicated to idols? Is there anything that demands our attention, our affection that rightly belongs to God? The answer to that clearly is yes, but for you, you have to ask a tough question. I'll have a couple examples today. What in your life is demanding attention and affection, trust and respect that only belongs to God? Okay, so um, I'll have a little bit more to say about that, but we need to actually get into the scriptures now. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that, quote, we all possess knowledge. Now, the reason that's in quotation marks is because we're, he's already said at the very beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, he's responding to a letter they wrote him, right? You remember that? They wrote him a letter with questions as to how it is they should be living. This is one of the questions they asked. What do we do? We're disagreeing about whether or not it's okay to eat this meat that's dedicated to idols. And so he starts off, yeah, okay, you all have knowledge. We all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So both of these things are up. But have you ever heard of anybody who's full of hot air? So that's the notion here. When you say someone's full of hot air, they're full of themselves. They love to hear themselves talk. But they don't have much to say, right? And you're laughing at me because you're like, hey, that's you, Pastor Jeffrey. And God forgive you for being so mean to me. But the knowledge you have, is it, is it, is it for uh, building yourself up, feeling good about yourself, or is it for building others up? This is going to be the thing that uh, he's dividing people based on your conduct. Are you thinking primarily of others, or are you thinking primarily of yourself? That's going to be throughout this chapter, so go ahead and hold on to that theme. Hold it up against yourself. Your personal decisions, are you going through your life going, I have the right to do this. I can do this just fine. Or are you going through your life thinking, how can I build up other people? Are you getting puffed up in yourself full of hot air? Or are you building up other people into temples of God? So that's the first thing he's presenting here. But he's also returning to a theme that was established at the beginning of the letter, which is they think they're pretty smart, don't they? You remember this? And he talks about how the foolishness of God is smarter than human wisdom. And he says, you're capitalizing on worldly wisdom. You need to be much more concerned about God's wisdom, and they are not the same thing. Do you remember this sermon? If not, you need to go back, and the church has the podcast. Go, go back in time, read chapters 1 and 2. He talked about that real solid. Here he's saying, fine, you have knowledge. You think you're pretty smart. He's already had that fight. But he's also been very clear, you guys are just babies. You remember when he said, you think you're grown-ups? I want to feed you meat but I'm having to give you milk. You remember that metaphor he used? He's writing to the same people here. And so he's going, fine, you have knowledge, but let's exercise some discernment about this knowledge. Is it filling you up with hot air or is it building up other people? And so he's gonna carry that question forward. At this point, I wanted to turn to a psychological phenomenon called the Dunning, what's the Dunning what effect? Kruger, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Has anybody ever heard of this? Two people, okay. So, the Dunning-Kruger effect is something that many humans, not all, many humans are subject to, 
where, okay, you see this, there's a confidence axis, how confident are you? And then to the right, competency. So competency means you're able to do things. So what you find with a lot of people is they know just a little bit and oh man, are they confident. You see the peak of Mount Stupid right there? So, and I'm sorry, I could, this is the only one I could find that was religiously affiliated. This is, this is about a whole other sermon. Um, but the peak of Mount Stupid is where a lot of people get, they learn a little bit of something about something and they think they're an expert, you know? And then what happens as you grow in competency, as you learn more, is you get humbled, right? And so it goes down into the valley of despair. And then as you continue to learn, then you grow in confidence as you, again as you finally know that you actually know what you're talking about, okay? I personally experienced this several times. I sure hope, you know, I think there are some people who think I just stalled out on the peak of Mount Stupid. I'm going to do my best to show you what I, if I don't know what I think I know, God will humble me, but I, I appreciate y'all acting like I, I'm a worthy, uh, tr trustworthy voice up here. Now, this is with the particular uh, question of whether or not the church is necessary uh, in the life of salvation. So the peak of Mount Stupid is, I don't need to go to church, I am the church. Okay, so that's people who, you know, they know they're a vessel of the Holy Spirit, that much is true, but they don't understand the importance of community or the fact that church literally means assembly of multiple people. The Valley of Despair says, I'm a body part without a body, a sheep without a flock. Once you try and do true religion on your own, it's, it's demoralizing because you can't, and the Bible makes no sense to you. But then as you grow, you realize I should start going to church and be shepherd and taught and meet other believers, which the scriptures very clearly point you to. And then the final place it's getting you to, the plateau of sustainability. Christ did not save me to be a lone sheep, but to be a functioning and active member of the body of Christ, of the local church, in order to fulfill the one another's we are called to do as Christians. So there are a lot of one another's in the scriptures, and it's not talking about all people. It's saying within the community of faith, this is how we should live. So this is just one among many theological topics where a lot of people, they have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, they have a mountaintop experience, they have an amazing experience reading the Bible once, and they think they understand it all. I know nobody here has ever been like that. But then if you actually try and practice your faith with other believers, you soon get humbled because they look at the same Bible and they see different things. They're doing their relationships different. They're doing their money different. They're doing everything. And then we, as a community, it gets, it gets hard. And a lot of people just say, I don't want to do this. I'm out of here. I'm going to do it my own way. But then what the church does is we lovingly are held together in the crucible of the church where we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, holding up what we're doing against the scriptures. And so that's what Paul is waking them up to here, looking at verse 3 now. Well, no, we're still in verse 2. Sorry. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. That directly corresponds to this, right? They think they know, they don't know. He's not saying you. He's saying those who think they know something don't know what they think they know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So there is a general sense in which God knows everybody, right? God knows the hair on our heads. He knows everything about us. There's not a sparrow that falls to the ground that God doesn't know about it. Even so, there are a few scriptures that the, the commentary I'm reading pointed out where it shows that there's another level of knowing where God knows us in the way that his son Jesus' blood is already applied to us. There's a way that God knows the elect that he does not know 
the condemned. And so I'm reminded of that story in Acts of the Apostles, the seven sons of Sceva. That's one of my favorite stories. They're these guys that discover that the power of, that Jesus' name has power. And so they go into this guy's house who's possessed by a demon. And they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we cast you out, demon. Y'all remember this story? It's such a cool story. The demon is not cast out. He says, Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you? And then he beats the crap out of them, tears their clothes off, and they run out into the street naked. They're humiliated because they are not known in the heavenly realms. They are not right with the God who gives authority to bear the name, to bear his name. So you remember, uh, do not bear the name of the Lord in vain. That means if you are going to claim to be of his covenant body, then you have to live rightly. You have to bear the fruits of repentance. You have to bear the fruits of the Spirit. Children, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If these things are being born out in your life, good. Keep it up. If they're not being born out in your life, it doesn't matter how much you know. You're not walking rightly. And what Paul leads us to contend right here is you are not known by God if you do not love him. That was the very first fruit of the Spirit, right? Love. All of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is going to be pointing towards that love. And if you don't have that love, you are not right with God. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody should always feel oh so loved by you. If you're a prickly person, you're not necessarily sinning. But do you love as Jesus loved? Do people experience the love and forgiveness and reconciliation through you that Christ extends to the world? Even if they don't experience it, are you offering it to them? That's the measure. Let's move on. Verse 4, so then, I've already been preaching 20 minutes on three verses. We are going to make it in time. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that, quote, an idol is nothing at all in the world, end quote, and that, quote, there is no God but one, end quote. So there he's quoting the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a quote from Deuteronomy. Jews said this prayer at the beginning and end of every day. Or I don't know if it is twice a day they said this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he's saying, he's anticipating the argument that they clearly are making. These idols, these other gods, they don't exist. There is no spiritual reality to them. We can eat this food that's dedicated to them. We can, we can say these prayers. We can participate in these civic rites that worship them. We don't need to worry about it. They're not real. We know our God is the only real God. Oh, that's easy. Okay, no big deal. We can just do all the things and, and not worry about committing idolatry because there actually no, are no idols. Does that sound, yeah, that sounds kind of weird to me, but that seems to be what they believe. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There is a lot here, actually. One is, Paul says flat out, there are other gods and lords. I grew up thinking there really weren't. 
I grew up thinking, oh, demons, that's just mental illness, and angels, that's just people's imagination, and there are, you know, when the, the ancients were, were worshiping Baal or uh, Marduk, that's just, you know, figments of their imagination. That's not, when you finally read the Bible, that is not the world in which the Bible was, was read. The Bible tells a story about God creating the heavens and the earth at the beginning of creation. And on day four, he created all of the celestial beings, including the heavenly host. Day six, he created us, land creatures. And then he put us in a garden and everything was perfect for we don't know how long. But then there was a rebellion in heaven, a rebellion on earth, and the rest, as they say, is history. We're living in the last days now when God is about to destroy everything and make a new heavens and a new earth. And those heavenly beings that are in alignment with him, as well as us, will reign and rule together in the new creation. That is the cosmic story in the Bible that, uh, I don't know, I don't even know what there is to argue about there. Here in this situation, you got these people flirting with worship of other gods, and they're saying, oh, there are no other gods, no worries. Now, let me just ask you real quick. I think this is an easy one. When there's something that might be sin... And there's a voice that says, oh, don't worry about it. Is that usually God's voice or Satan's? So that can go to a crazy place, you know, where everything is sin because you just don't know. But there are a lot of things that really, you know, I mean, okay, so like Footloose. Anybody ever seen Footloose? I know you love Footloose. But it was in a time in this country where we understood that uh, dancing is often a Horizontal, no, it's a vertical expression of horizontal desire. Anybody ever heard that phrase? I like that one. But dancing can open some doors that really shouldn't be opened outside of marriage. And I know about this from other chapters of my life. That's a whole other thing. But Footloose was made to mock people concerned about dancing. Now, I'm not making the case here that dancing is sin. What I am saying is there are a lot of things that people scoff and mock that actually you're kind of dangerous. And I'll say it again, I personally have experienced the danger from that. But one of the ways that the world scoffs at the faith is they take faithful people going, I'm not sure that's a good practice for us, and going, oh, you fuddy-duddy. You're just a wet blanket. There's no threat here. You've been saved, I've been saved, we can't screw it up. I think that's a doctrine that leads to a lot of regrettable things. And so here they clearly have this doctrine that we can eat whatever, we can be in the temple, we can do whatever we want, we're right with God, we have the right to do this, we don't need to worry about it. And for people like me, I like to meet things head on, Paul doesn't meet it head on. He goes, okay, you might have knowledge, you might be right. Personally, he says there are other gods, otherwise the title of God God of gods and Lord of lords does not make any sense. What other lords are we talking about if there's no other lords? So he says there are other ones, but fine. There's only one God, one true God, El Elyon. He sits at the highest heavens. He made everything. He is the creator God. We're the ones who follow him. He is our God. No other God can come close to him. Fine. But then he says, are you thinking about yourself or about others? When you think about whether or not you partake of this, are you thinking about yourself, your rights, your feelings, or are you thinking about others? So he says, we believe in one God, and then he says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus. 
God, the Father, is not Jesus, is not God. If you've ever seen the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, but the three of them together are God. That's a brain breaker right there. But he says, yes, we say the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And there's, there's one Jesus. Okay. So where are we? We're at verse uh, 7, right? But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Let me ask you real quick. Is it a sin to be weak? I've got one no, four, five, six no's. It is not a sin to be weak. Thank God, right? Because we all go through stages of life where we're weak. We all finally go into this ultimately weak state where our bodies die. It is not a sin to be weak at all. So when he's calling them weak, it's not an insult. He's just saying they're weak. You apparently in your knowledge, you're so strong, but think about the effect you have on weak people. Verse eight, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Now, I love meat. I do. I had steak last night. It was so good. But if I go the rest of my life without having meat, have I lived less than a full life? No. No. I was once upon a time married to a vegetarian. I was, I was miserable in my stomach, but I was full in my heart. Life is not about eating and drinking. Life is not about sex. That's what we heard in the last chapter. Life is about righteousness and seeking God. And when you do that, you have all. Even if you go all your life without sex, all your life without food, your life is just as worthy and full as anybody else if it's a life lived and died in Christ Jesus. Can anyone say amen to that? And so that's what he's saying here is, I can tell you guys really like meat and you feel good about it in your spirit, but look at the impact it's having on these weak people. Are you really sure it's that important for you to be talking about your rights rather than looking out for the weak? I'll tell you, I'll tell you where this gets really hard for me. I didn't talk about this in Delaware. I've been really concerned about the role of um, face masks in, in response to, to COVID because my understanding of the human immune system is that it needs to be tested in order for us to be strong. You know, when you look at allergies in kids with uh, peanut butter and, and bee, bee stings, we already know that those heightened allergies are because children are exposed to much less microbacteria the first few years of life than kids of previous generations. Regular exposure to test your immune system is what's required for a robust immune system. And so to my mind, we all love each other whenever we help each other have a robust immune system, but that's not what I find in the Bible. What I find in the Bible is, look out for the weak. There are some people who cannot handle what you can handle. And if you come in going, this is my right, I'm an American, don't tell me what to do. I mean, that's not the Christian mindset. The Christian mindset is, how is my conduct going to affect other people? Now, that's not to say anything about the efficacy of face masks or anything like that. This was a metaphor. So regardless of your position on face masks, I hope you heard the point being there. The Christian mindset is not, here's my right, here's what I want to do, I have the freedom to do whatever. The Christian mindset is, how is this going to impact other people? Verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. Hopefully that sounds like it fits together with what I've been saying. Verse 10, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge 
Does this start to sound like he's mocking them? With all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Is destroyed a big word? Is that a big bad word or is that not a big deal? Destroyed is a pretty big deal. The indication here is what you do affects other people. You sociopath? Sociopaths believe that life is just about them. They don't conceive of other people's emotions. You and I are raised in a very selfish culture that's just like, you do you. Follow your heart, you know? And what you find in the Bible is, forget about you. Think about other people. You're going through your life thinking about you, and meanwhile, look at the wreckage and destruction you're causing. Think about other, look at the impact you're having on these people. Now, in ancient Roman society, these settings right here, this is not like private dinner parties. You know, like I've had a lot of y'all over for dinner. If I haven't already, uh, it's on my agenda too. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about big public festivities where if you're going to participate in the civic life of this community, you've got to go to these things. And here you have some that are just like, yeah, I'll eat whatever. I don't care. And then there are other people going, wait, was this sacrifice to another God? I only serve Christ Jesus. And they're going, well, why... Why are you being such a fuddy-duddy when your brother over here, you all go to worship together every week, right? He's acting like it's no big deal. Are you, you just hate us, don't you? think you're better than us, don't you? Christians were hated in the Roman Empire. They were called atheists because they said straight up, we don't believe in any of those gods that you worship. We think you're worshiping demons. We think you're wasting your lives. And so the world killed them because that is offensive. And so here you have a point of faith where some people are looking at the world, and they're in these dining situations, and they're going, well, I don't want to offend anybody, and other gods aren't real anyway, so give me some of that steak. And then there are other people going, no, I fear God. I'm, I'm not afraid of these people. I'm not going to eat their meat. And so that's the division point. And then some, Paul, you know, we can infer they're saying to Paul, hey, we shouldn't be alienating the world and being mean to people. Surely we should give in and participate in the festivities. And he's going, forget people outside of the church. Look at your brother and sister in Christ. How are you impacting them? You're causing them to stumble. You're causing them to fall back into the idolatry that you were a part of saving them out of. If it means enmity with the world, stand by your brother and sister in Christ. And so here is the point where the rubber hits the road. We do not have big public uh, festivities in America where we eat food that's dedicated to other gods. That's just not a thing. But we would be wrong if we thought nothing in here applies to us. Is there anything in our culture today that demands the affections, the loyalty, to tr the trust that we're supposed to put in Christ alone? I thought of two different things that may or may not hit the mark. I'm not going to say you have to agree with me. I'm going to say consider it. One is going to the casino. And I understand people, there are a lot of people who say, hey, my conscience is clear. I can go to the casino. No problem. I can sit and have a soda. No big deal. But, and I understand there's nothing in the Bible saying going to the casino is a sin. I do. But the number one motivation for building and having a casino is what? Love of money. Right? Right? Have we been warned about love of money? We have. It's a very dangerous thing to do that dance. And maybe you can do it just fine, but pretend 
that for some reason or another, there's another person from the church who sees you in the casino. This happened all the time in Idaho. They had casinos where Mormons were, and the Mormons had this doctrine of perfection, and then people would see them drinking and gambling at the casino, and it ruined them. And that's the impact that it has. Another one worth thinking about. The Bible does say uh, you should have a drink at the end of the night. He's writing, Paul's writing Timothy. He said, it's for your digestion, have a glass of wine at the end of the night. There's some people who can have a drink just fine. Goes no further than that. They don't get drunk. But there's some people who don't have that self-control. And what happens when you're in a public setting and they see you drinking? This is something I'm guilty of, by the way. They see you drinking and they don't have that self-control and they say, well, hey, if that's okay spiritually, if he can do it, then I can do it. And they can't, and you cause them to stumble and fall. See, we're in a, in a culture where it goes, who cares? That's their problem. The biblical ethic is, you care, it's their problem, and that makes it your problem. We share each other's burdens, don't we? Now, the last one that I thought of this morning, we had a, an issue a couple months ago where there was a member of this church who was part of a sports league, and they scheduled the tournament for that sports league on a Sunday morning so that they could not be in worship. And so the mind goes, well, it's no big deal. We can be gone one week. You know, God, God shares. It's not going to be a big deal. And, you know, sports do all this good for the community. It's good for their self-esteem. It's, you know, we've been working all. Surely we can miss one Sunday. I wonder sometimes if our loyalty to sports can come between us and God. Whether that be missing worship, that's an obvious case, but how many people, even if they're in worship every Sunday, a lot of their headspace goes to diversions and sports and not to working out their salvation with fear and trembling. So, I'm doing my pastor thing, I lifted up three things, you decide, you look in the mirror, whatever. Let's finish this off. Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Does it sound like a big deal to sin against Christ? So bringing this home, when your behavior affects other people in the body for worse, it impacts their relationship with God for the worse, that is something you have to answer to God for, whether or not what you did is actually a sin. This is a very un-American concept. And it's very scary because you have to worry about how other people interpret you. So I think it's good for you to be close to your family members, your spiritual family members. Uh, to have the lines of communication open so that if they see you behaving in a certain way, they can come and say, were you really doing this? How do you, how do you justify that? And it's really important that when people come to us, we're not defensive and say, well, how dare you judge me? The final verse, verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Just wrapping it up, it's not saying that we have to be vegetarians. It is saying that we have to consider one another. And surely that's a fair thing to ask. 